So again, hopefully you got to come and celebrate yesterday with us um, all together, and uh, I hope you got the opportunity to go through the kind of um, uh, Passion Week reenactment activity that we had going out here. Trish and her team created a, a really fun uh, experience for that, um, going through that with the, the temple and the tomb and the Passover and so many other little pieces, including the palm leaves and the entrance through the walls. Um, for us to understand that today uh, we have a special celebration in the church every year. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth, seemingly just another in a long line of would-be messiahs, left Jericho with a crowd of people following him, and he set his face for Jerusalem. After a quick stop off in Bethany, Jesus and this crowd, now further swelled with those who knew him from Bethany and Bethphage, um, rode on the foal of a donkey down the hill through an ancient olive grove and across the Kidron Valley. This is actually one of my favorite moments in Israel um, is to get to go to do this walk that we do each time as we walk down the Mount of Olives, down uh, somewhere along the line of the path that Jesus would have ridden this donkey, and then down uh, sometimes even through the Kidron Valley we get to walk, sometimes not, but this valley that runs there um, through the one peak between two peaks, and um, then and as he started up the next hill, the crowd following him ran ahead pulling down palm fronds and pulling off their cloaks. As he rode through them, they waved them and threw them before him, crying out an ancient praise and prophecy, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna, it's a word we don't use very much anymore, Hosanna was a, no one knows exactly what Hosanna means. It comes from a few different Hebrew words probably could, um, kind of combined together to create the phrase, please save us. With it, with the word Hosanna would have the tone of desperation, we're begging you. We're desperate, please save us. Just pause and imagine what that meant to them. Please save us. And what it might mean to us. It was so loud, the crowd was so large, and the, cry out was, the outcry was so loud that some of the Pharisees there instructed Jesus to tell the crowd to be quiet. Jesus, I think barely paying any attention to them at all, said, if they were quiet, the rocks would cry out. One of the things that stands out to me about this idea of the rocks crying out um, it, it forces me to consider the judgment on those silent humans if it were necessary for stones to praise him. A seek strikes me as something that would be something I wouldn't want to experience is, is the consequences on his people who were so silent that in order for him to receive praise in a key moment like this, stones would have to cry out. I really want to encourage all of us. There's so much to be taught here. And as we go through, um, jump back into 2 Peter here in a second, I think it's a good reminder to us that the proclamation of who Christ is, of who Jesus is, is something that should be in our mouths all the time. That we should always be working to end our silence when it comes to the truth of who he is. Isn't it easy, just like them? I would love to think the Pharisees were mostly worried about what they would consider potential heresy um, by the people crying this out. Maybe blasphemy that 
that if he's not really the Messiah, as they thought he probably wasn't, or were they proclaiming too much and calling him not merely the Messiah, but perhaps even God himself? And so I'd love to think that the Pharisees were mostly concerned about that, but the truth is they were probably mostly concerned about the Romans. What are the Romans going to think if they see a crowd of people walking into Jerusalem with a guy on a donkey? They know that the Romans have heard this prophecy. This has been tried before. This isn't the first guy to show up on a donkey coming into Jerusalem. And all the ones in the past, pretty much the Romans not only slaughtered all the followers and crucified those who were still left, but then sometimes followed through with, with shutting down the Pharisees and their political power as well. And I think probably... What you have is someone saying, be quiet, stop proclaiming who he is because someone's going to be offended. Either the government's going to be offended or the people are going to be offended. And isn't that the same motivation we have for staying quiet? Someone's going to get offended. Someone's going to get their feelings hurt. Someone's going to be mad at us. Um, it's not a good strategy. These people then follow him all the way into the temple where he looks around and in maybe one of the greatest moments of disillusionment ever, Jesus destroys the illusion that he was there to do what they wanted. Jesus destroys the illusion that he was there to be what they wanted him to be, and he destroys the illusion that he was there with their agenda in mind. The clarifying moment that let, them know, let him know that he was more than merely some social activist or some rebel leader, two boxes that people to this day continue to try to force Jesus into, and he doesn't fit he blows out the seams every time. He was much, much more than that. He goes up into the temple, which would have been the exact right moment to declare who he was with a massive crowd of people. Here in Passover week, it would be perfect for him to declare himself the new king of Israel here in Jerusalem, the new priest of Israel here in the temple. And instead, he looks around and leaves and goes back to Bethany. He has bigger fish to fry than just the Roman government, than just the social justice. He has bigger fish to fry. He's got to set the whole world free of sin. And one week here before his resurrection, we celebrate him again by studying his word, and we study him as the word, and we praise him and pray to him. So let's do that. Father, thank you so much for the power of your word. Thank you so much for the revelation of your son. And in a long list of would-be messiahs, he stands out. And a long list of would-be saviors of the world, he stands out. All the rest of them are dead, and he's alive. All the rest of them proclaimed their message until the moment came for their death, and then they died just like he did. And unlike them, he rose again. And so we celebrate all of these things that we celebrate because of what we're going to celebrate next Sunday. Lord, we thank you that your son came to purchase us for you and to bring good gifts to us because you're just that kind of a God. We thank you for this in your son's magnificent name. Amen. <clears throat> so as we jump into this, just a reminder, we're still unpacking what only takes like two or three minutes to read, um, but here we are on, on sermon number three or four of just barely breaking into to Second Peter. Because as we unpack these and we see all the detail and what is so carefully woven into this letter, um, so precisely written, Peter has proclaimed that God has given us what we need, everything we need for a complete and full life and godliness, how to live in that. So this picture of as we look at this and live this out, he says these, these words, these virtues, and especially if you've not been here the last few weeks, I really want to encourage you um, not to uh, misunderstand. 
Because it's very easy for you to think, oh, I showed up at a church here on a Sunday morning, and I'm especially at a Baptist church, and now what's going to happen is we've got this list of good things I'm supposed to be doing, and, and it's a behavioral modification sermon, and if I just do these things, then Jesus will no longer, I won't be hurting Jesus' feelings anymore, and then he won't send me to hell, and he'll be happy with me, and that's not at all what we're going to be teaching. Everything we're talking about here is a result of a gift. It's a change in identity. These things that I'm about to read, this is the things that he's unpacking. These are the way that the Christian life lived in freedom and godliness, lived according to the good gift of who he is, the way it lives out with faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, love, and love. Two different Greek words for love, brotherly love, friendship, and devoted sacrificial love. So let's read, what, after showing us this, this is what it looks like. Peter now continues in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 8, starting in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. All right, so let's go phrase by phrase once again through this. We'll start with the phrase for if these qualities are yours and are increasing. All I can say is thank you, Peter. Thank you, the Holy Spirit, for guiding Peter to write these words. I think it would be natural for us, especially us who, who have this kind of churchified background, this behavioral modification background, to think, oh, this is, these are pass-fail qualities. That this is, these are, you, you either got this or you've blown it. And those are really the only two options. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly love, and sacrificial love. So, in other words, these things are supposed to be in our lives, but also increasing. Well, that means they're not fully there if they can increase, Right? This isn't some absurd, I know some of you are those type of people who, who when we talk about giving out a free 100, automatically, that that's, that's like the gospel, is you get a free 100 just for joining the class, that you're like, yeah, but I want to make 103. I know some of you are out there, freaks. It's, there's something wrong with you, like, you have a 100, my friend, just take a break, right? But you're like, no, no, somehow I've got to still find a way to compete with other humans in order to prove my value. It's not enough to just make a 100. Listen, this is, this is a, we're all starting at a, with a failing grade and increasing. That's kind of the idea. Do I have faith? Yes. Forgive my unbelief. Do I have God's virtues? I mean, well, yeah, I mean, some of them. But I think if you ask my family, they would say there's some room to grow, right? Probably. Knowledge? Yeah. But is it enough? I mean, isn't there more I could learn? I have some knowledge, but there's so much more. Self-control? Give me a minute. Yeah, but there's certainly, uh, certainly more I could do when it comes to self-control, I think. Right? These traits, the understanding that Christianity... Oh, and I got a piece of glaze on my... There we go. Um, all right, so this is a, the Christian life, it turns out, is a growth business. It's not a perfection, it is a perfecting business. 
These traits are perfect in Him, and He is completing them in us. When we come together, we are joining a flock of flawed and imperfect sheep. Freaks and strangers, rejects and outcasts and wannabes. You may not see it. If you come and you don't see these traits in us, I don't mean the good ones, I mean the bad ones. If you don't see that we've got a lot of room to grow, then that just means that either we're hiding it well, or in fact the miracle is that God is working in our lives. People who each, every, and all need a Savior. That's who we are. We admit that when we come to a place like this. We're admitting that each of us, all of us, every one of us need a Savior. And we didn't just need Him at one point. We still need Him. And we need Him all the time. Some of you who are here today are unchurched, or you're badly churched, or you're traumatically churched, or maybe you're over-churched. But certainly wherever you are in relationship to the local body, we are all in need of a life of transformation that only He can create in us. And certainly only He can complete in us. We're not somehow better. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, understand, this idea that we have these traits and they're increasing in us is exactly the plan. And there will come a day when we will be given as a gift the completion of this. This is what you need of this in order to experience eternal life forever. And between now and then, we have them, and hopefully they're increasing. And if they are, so here we go, why do we need these things? Why do we need these qualities and, to, and for them to continue to be increasing? Well, because Peter says, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fascinating words here, ineffective and unfruitful, quite obviously in opposition to the fact that they are in you and increasing if they are not in you and increasing, then the knowledge that you have is ineffective and unfruitful. Clearly, Peter's playing off these two, these two things against each other. In other words, the word ineffective here means doing nothing and producing nothing. That's a painful word. In a few days, a few couple of weeks, Compassion International is going to be here. And we love Compassion International in that ministry, and they love us. Um, man, they love us a lot. And so they are excited to come out again. We'll be challenging, as we always do, all of the members of our church and others as well, but certainly all the members of our church, part of worship and living out, making a life that is effective and fruitful includes things like being involved and invested in a ministry like Compassion, um, where you get to spend just a few dollars every month. It used to be people would say just a cup of coffee a day. That was before Starbucks. You can take on a compassion kid for having, for, and not have a cup of coffee for like three days. You just, you just, you just do one, t just skip three days of coffee and you can conform a, 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 take on a compassion kid. This would be a great example of our knowledge not being fruitless. In fact, as we were talking about this idea of being fruitless, uh, John Redford and I got on the, on to the online, I guess it was Zoom or whatever it was, and we were talking to the young lady who's going to be the Compassion alum, she was a Compassion kid, who's going to be coming and sharing our, her story with us. And so we're literally talking about this passage about being fruitless, and she gets on, and her name is Kiwi. <laughs> and, and, uh, and that struck me as, as significant. And then she told us her story, and it revolves, one of the concepts it revolves around, one of them, and we'll see how much emphasis it gets, is a story about an apple that is fascinating. And, and she's talking, I'm like, I think I'll figure out, I think I think you can figure out a way to roll this into the conversation. This whole fruitfulness thing um, seems to be working for us. 
If you didn't know better, you would think God was encouraging us not to be fruitless in just our knowledge. See, we could have the knowledge and potentially be ineffective and unfruitful. That's a scary thought. It's a scary thought that just having it in our heads, having the knowledge, is not sufficient. How heartbreaking, and yet how human. We look at Revelation, two, two of the letters in Revelation. So Revelation 1 introduces us to the person of Jesus Christ in His glory. And John struggles and fails to try to describe Jesus in all of His glory. In then chapter 2 and chapter 3, this person in all of His glory then begins to send out messengers to different churches to tell them, hey, here's what I've got. I've got some feedback for you. It's, it's annual evaluation time, and I'm going to give you some feedback in regards to how you are as a, as a church. Revelation 2, 1 through 5, we meet the church of Ephesus, or the letter to the church of Ephesus. Here's how it goes. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, this is Jesus from chapter 1. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but aren't. And you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I think the church of Ephesus was a church that understood the doctrine. And they could test it. If you showed up at the church of Ephesus with a message from Jesus Christ, you got about three sentences in, and if you weren't on target, at that point they would stop you and say, you're done talking. When the false teachers, and there were lots of them, would show up, the church in Ephesus, you didn't last long. They knew their stuff. They had it in their brain, and they knew how to apply it when it came to doctrine. They knew how to apply it when it came to theology. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. So they had the knowledge, and they knew how to apply it when it came to doctrine and theology, but they weren't living it out in love. Or their love for him was not where it should have been. Is it sufficient? Is it sufficient to have good theology, but then not be living it in your heart? Verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. There's that word we're going to see again in a minute. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. No, it's not okay. Then we have Revelation 2, the, the letter a little ways down, 12 through 16, to the, church of the, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, another city, right? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, again, Jesus from chapter 1, and he says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Man, they are holding fast in a tough spot. He literally is calling Pergamum where Satan dwells. This is Satan's throne room. This is his playground. And the church of Pergamum is hanging in there. They have a lot of grit, a lot of heart, a lot of guts. They're not giving up in this. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to, to, be a, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. They've got some false teachers. They've got some people who are teaching doctrine wrongly, even virtue, even ethics incorrectly. Verse 14, 15, so also you have some there who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We don't know much about them, but we know they were a false teaching group. They show up several times in the book of Revelation. So the problem is the church of Pergamum, man, they have got the, the gut, the grit, the heart. They're hanging in there, 
but their doctrine is not as sound as it needs to be. So people are showing up and they're teaching wrong stuff and they're getting away with it. Is that okay? If you have the knowledge and you apply it with your heart, but not with your doctrine, with your mind, with your logic, is that good enough? Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You may have passion in the midst of Satan's lair, but your theology is weak. This also is not okay. What we're being told is we should not be ineffective or unfruitful in our thinking or in our action. It's intriguing to me, people come all the time saying that they need knowledge. Knowledge is the thing that I hear about the most often. As a therapist, those of your counselors out there, you run into this all the time, is that people come to you, especially for marriage counseling, what they say they need is tools. I have not found that to be true. Actually, it turns out most of them learned everything they need to know about marriage in kindergarten. At least the basics. So if I ask them, well, are you nice to one another? Not really. Okay, that, that might be a place to start. Are you rude? Are you insensitive? Do you accuse? Do you cuss a lot? Do you call each other names? Yeah, I've got a crazy idea. Stop that. Like, don't do that. And if you don't do that, you may discover that your marriage actually has a pretty good possibility of growing. Turns out you probably have most of the tools you need. You're just unwilling to apply them to marriage. Most of us do. I mean, I, I, by definition, I said in the first service, I, I made a reference about, I, I don't think I sin in ignorance that often, but then I guess I wouldn't know if I did. But, the, um, <laughs> but I know that I sin plenty without ignorance. Rarely am I unaware of the way of escape. I'm usually aware of it, right? In fact, Scripture might teach I'm always aware of it if I'm looking. But So it's, it's usually, rarely is the issue that we just don't have the knowledge. <coughs> we don't have the tools. If you don't have the knowledge, that's the easy part. What we lack is the willingness or the submission or the obedience or the whatever it is that would allow us to apply His teaching. What we lack is a willingness to change where we know we need to change. How important is the conversation of faith and knowledge been lived out in our lives? Well, for years, people have tried to fight the fight about faith without works being dead. It's amazing how people get up in arms about this, about what James taught about faith without works being dead. And they try to make all kinds of applications when I think James actually applied it very clearly. I think he defined it very clearly in the book of James. And I think probably Peter has read it. I actually think 2 Peter was one of the last of the epistles that we have, and Peter had probably read most of the other letters that were out there, the letters of James and Jude and, and certainly of Paul. I think he would have already read them. In fact, we're going to find out in 2 Peter that for sure Peter had read some of the writings of Paul and, and apparently been confused by some of them, which is kind of comforting as well, right? So listen now, James, I think this is James very clearly interpreting his own concept here. James 2, 19 and 20 says, you believe that God is one. See, knowledge. You believe God is one and you do well. Good. Well done. Good. You should know God is one. Even the demons believe that. I mean, if you have the knowledge, there is a God. I mean, welcome to the club. You and all of Satan's minions know that one. Everybody knows that. And they shudder about it. They have a, at least an emotional response. Like you talk to them about the Lord being one, and they're like, oh, man, that guy scares me, right? Do you want to be shown, you foolish persons, that faith apart from works is useless? 
That, there you go. How about the fact that the demons even believe and that faith is worthless to them? It's useless to them. The Greek word there is the exact same word. It's the same word as is found in that other passage, ineffective, useless. Peter is using the same word. This is, and they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Having the knowledge, still, those things that we talked about, the virtue and the self-control and the steadfastness and the love, these are the things that keep that knowledge from being fruitless, ineffective. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, what a great phraseology here. So you do, someone who does not have them, and they are not increasing, but just flat lacks them. From a virtue perspective, they are blind. Notice that the knowledge again is here. These aren't people who can't see. These are people who won't see. They have the tools, they just won't practice them. A believer who is not living these things out about the knowledge that they have at one point has obviously forgotten the knowledge that they had. That's clearly what Peter's saying here. <coughs> what have they forgotten? <clears throat> well, have they forgotten that at one point they were aware of sin and judgment? Have they forgotten that at one point they realized how hopeless they were? It's part of the gospel message is that we are not low on hope. It's not that we don't have a lot of hope. It's not that we're short and we need a little more hope. It's that we are hopeless. It's that we have absolutely no chance. I don't remember who I was talking to this week, but someone was describing a, a, a podcast or a teacher who they were teaching who said the deeper they get into the gospel, y'all remember that whole chasm? Was this you, Paul, talking about? Or, anyway, but the, the whole the chasm analogy of people um, that you learned growing up that like, here's me and here's, you know, sin and death and here's heaven. And in order for me to get to God, I would have to run and jump this chasm. And, and, you know, somebody who can jump 15 feet, it doesn't actually make any advantage over people who jump like five feet. Like, well, it's, I mean, it's four miles. I'm glad you got 15 feet. You got 10 feet further out near the middle than I did, but you're still, I mean, you're hopeless. And this guy was saying, as I continue to study God's Word and His gospel, the chasm just keeps growing. The gap between me and God, the better I understand God, grows and grows and grows. Which he says, so those of you who know this analogy, what bridges the gap? Jesus does. His work on the cross. And he said what's funny about that is as his continued understanding of this gap grows and grows and grows, what he realizes is in his mind and heart, Jesus just grows and grows and grows and grows. See, the knowledge is there, and it's increasing. That's, that's the beautiful picture there. Here you have someone who has forgotten that. They have forgotten that they ever needed this. They've forgotten that there is such a thing as judgment. You forgot that you had this heap of sins that stained you and needed to be cleansed, hanging on you. The judgment of evil is a necessary response of justice. This is one of the things we run into when we talk about the doctrine of hell, especially with nonbelievers, and which, again, obviously we all struggle at some degree with what hell is and, and what's there and how God makes those calls, but luckily he's, the, he's God and we're not, and he can make them. But it is appropriate. There is a, understand the, the idea that if you are a just person, you hate evil. I mean, you, you despise evil, and you despise its effect on us, and you despise its effect on the people you love especially. When you see them caught up in sin and lost and destroying their lives, you learn to hate that. I use the example in first service 
Um, you know, for years, the United States tried to take a stand against drunk driving. The government had one thing after another, ads, commercials, all that kind of stuff. But nothing that anybody did ever really made a dent in the numbers as far as drunk driving until a population decided they were done. With, they were done. You remember who that was? Mothers. We all know. When the mothers decided they were done with drunk driving, when they got mad, the society started changing. It's fascinating to hear people today, there are two great sins left in America, murder and driving drunk. I'm telling you as a therapist, people all the time are like, oh, I got, yeah, I got really drunk and I didn't, I didn't drive. Like, they got to tell me that. Like, <laughs> I, listen, I didn't drive. I don't, don't, I don't, you don't want you to think I'm that kind of a person. <clears throat> They'll list all the sins in the world that they committed last weekend. Be like, but I didn't drive. Like, I, listen, I'm not going to stick the moms on you. I'm not going to send them your name. They're going <laughs> to, I promise confidential. Um, that's what they're afraid of. You're going to let mad know that I drove drunk and they're going to come get me. That is, that is an appropriate response of a just person to evil and death and destruction is to go, I'm not putting up with that. There's a consequence for that. We're going to shut that stuff down. And it's one of the things we forgot. Mainly maybe what we forgot is to appreciate what's happened, is to appreciate what God did for us. We have forgotten what he did for us. We are blinded by our lack of appreciation. By the way, this is another great tool in marriage. If you haven't communicated recently to your spouse how much you appreciate them and what for, mm, good step. No extra charge for that. You should find out a few ways to remember this. Get together a few times a week. So how could we, how could we remember this? How could we keep on our forefront of our minds the appreciation of this amazing thing that God has done for us? Well, I've got a, I've got a crazy proposal. I think at least once a week, we should just kind of all get together and talk about it and sing about it and give money in response to it and serve each other because of it. Let me tell you, if you're not involved in a body of believers in a church, one of the first things that will go is your appreciation of what God has done for you. If we're not constantly reminding each other, can you believe this? Look at this. What is, who is this? Who does this? When we're not sharing, as Romans, tell, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 talk about, when we're not here to share one another's victories, when we're not here to share one another's defeats, um, I remember, listen, I heard this first time in a John Sherman sermon, that's not easy to say, John, uh, John who preached a few weeks ago here while I was gone, and he referenced this idea, which I know he didn't come up with this, that, that a, a sorrow shared is half a sorrow, and a joy shared is twice a joy. That's a great, beautiful, <coughs> biblical thing. God loves to give good gifts. <coughs> God, um, so you get to celebrate with me. God gave a good gift to our family last night um, that we get to celebrate together, and that is that that um, Mark proposed to Shannon, those of you who know Mark and Shannon, and she said yes. So that's a pretty cool celebration. And it, don't tell him I told you. He probably wants to tell you himself. So just keep that quiet. All right. So this idea, <clears throat> we forget about his good gifts so easily. <clears throat> we forget to do that. And when we come together, we're reminded of it. We're reminded to do that. Now, why nearsighted? Why, is, why does Peter use the concept of nearsighted? Someone who can't see far off. Well, I think there's some things that they can't see into the past and remember. They can't see past the present world. The pains or the sorrows or the whatever is being thrown in our way, the persecutions and the fear that we have. But I would say if our lives do not look like these words, faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and 
friendship and sacrificial love, we're not taking advantage of the light. And we're walking in darkness. Though we can see we're walking in darkness, and we insist on staying in darkness. And there is no blindness like people who refuse to see. That's a special kind of darkness. So one more passage um, unwrapping this. Having, look, at, look at what Peter says. The blindness comes from, quote, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. <coughs> if I may, let me give you this encouragement. Never, 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 never forget that you've been cleansed from your former sins. When the enemy comes to try to hang those back around your neck, here's what you need to do. Never forget that he has cleansed you of your former sins. When you feel disqualified from serving God because of your past, here's my encouragement to you. Never, never forget that he has cleansed you of your former sins. When other people want to make the defining issue in your life, the mistakes from your past, or the sins of your past, never, never forget that you have been cleansed from your former sins. However that applies, live in the freedom that comes from the truth of it, the identity that comes from this, the truth of the purity that has been purchased and given to us. One of the errors, so as with all Christian movements, um, the purity movement that came around in the late 70s and the 80s and the 90s um, had great proponents and great teachers who applied it well and ones that did so poorly. And the ones that did so poorly, along with several Christian books, especially on marriage, published around that time, which were done poorly, implied that purity was something that we had to manufacture. For young dating couples, that purity was something you were going to make happen. You were going to create this purity. Instead of recognizing the truth, only Christ can make us pure. And then our choice is, do we live in that purity or not? Not do we create it. We can't make it. We don't, we don't, we don't force that. We don't manufacture that. It's a change in identity that makes us pure. It's the work of Jesus Christ that makes us pure. And then we get to live according to those things as we've just been listed. Every time I think about the truth that I have been, for, that I have been cleansed of my former sins, that I should never forget that I have been cleansed of my former sins, it reminds me of three English words. It is finished. We celebrate next week the truth of those three words, which if I remember correctly is one Greek word. It is finished. Therefore, brothers, verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. We hear the word fall and we freak out a little bit. We'll get there in one second. But we don't want to forget this. Instead of forgetting it, be diligent to confirm it. Be diligent to confirm your calling and election. These are presented here as behavior on God's part, actions he has performed. He calls and he elects. The calling is the invitation. The election is the choosing. I think it's vital for us to notice as a church and as a people, so that we're not distracted by this, the integration of our role and God's role are clear here. They are well integrated in this passage as they always seem to be to me. Why mention calling if there is election? Well, because both are important. Neither one cancels out the other one. Is my identity changed and my life transformed because I answered a call? Or is it because I was chosen? Peter, like Paul and Jesus, I think would say, yes. Notice how all three of them feel no need to put those contradictions, to create a contradiction with those. 
Look at Ephesians 1, 11 through 13, maybe one of the clearest passages on predestination and election ever. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is pretty much in your face, this idea of election. The doctrine of election is sound, and it is real, and it is here in the Bible. We have obtained an inheritance because we were chosen in advance, predestination, to set the boundary in advance, according to whose purpose? His. Who did the work? He did. According to the counsel of who? Who did he ask about this? Himself. When God wants advice, he goes to God. God's phone a friend goes, is always busy because it's, it's always him calling him. So now look at verse 12. So we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. The next verse, 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Oh, so you heard it and believed, and that's when the sealing happened. So in other words, Paul seems to put these things right there together and integrate them beautifully. Jesus does the same thing. John 6, 35 through 37. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, there's the calling and the response. If you respond to his calling, you don't hunger and you don't thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. <coughs> Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Again, is it the response to a call? Or is it the election of the sovereign? And the answer in all three of these passages, as an example, is yes. I don't see the, everywhere I look in Scripture, I don't see these things put in contradiction. We put them in contradiction. But I see them integrated by the power of the gospel. Here, I think the idea of being made certain or confirming them, of making certain or confirming that calling and that election, of course, I think one application is that other people can see it in us. When I was a student minister, I used to periodically go to the student schools and I would stop randomly, stop the first like six or eight students who I would find, and I would just say, hey, if I wanted to know about Jesus, what students should I talk to? So which students should I talk to? If I want to know about Jesus, not teachers, not administrators, I want to know, for, what students should I go talk to if I want to know about Jesus? And what's amazing is in Fort Worth, where we were, there would be schools of, of, ten, of hundreds and thousands of students, and I would say, and I would get the same three or four names over and over and over again, because it turns out the students... Even the lost ones, they knew whose calling and election were confirmed. They could see it in their lives. They could hear it in their voice. They knew who would be happy to talk to me about Jesus. It was always fun the next week in, in, on Sunday morning with the youth there to read out the names that I had been given when I had been at school that week. That's part of it. I do think so. But I think the main thing here in this passage is actually that Peter wants us to make it certain to ourselves. He wants it to be confirmed in our own thinking, with, in our own knowledge and with our own lives, so that we could look at our lives and see the evidence ourselves. That we could, if you could imagine, be the attorney who convicts us of being believers. Because we see ourselves best and most. The Greek here with the word fall, that this will protect us from falling, <clears throat> the Greek here, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary, indicate that fall here implies stumbling and falling like in a race. Like the idea that you're trying to run a race and your feet get tangled up, something entangles you and you fall. And maybe you're not able to finish the race. But regardless, while running the race, what happens is you fall. 
And this is, he's saying, if you will live these things out, that won't happen. <clears throat> In the race that you're running, you won't fall. You will not fail to finish strong. So this creates an opportunity for an invitation. I want you to go ahead and stand with me. I wonder sometimes when I'm reading this, if, if Peter, when I read it, if Peter had already been reading, like what had Peter been reading recently? This section I read, and it reminds me so much of a passage in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read it here in a second. And you can, you can engage with it. If you're in this time of invitation, as we'll be singing together, you can sing, which would be great. You can just rejoice in the gifts of those who are singing and listen to what God is speaking to you about. Those who sing, those who play, those who lead, that you can, you can just rejoice in that. You can come up here and pray. Um, listen, you can pray anywhere in the world, anywhere in the universe you can pray, but there's something about the changing the position of our bodies that also changes the position of our souls. And if it would help you to come and kneel, feel free to do so, or where you are. If you need to find someone in the room and make something right with somebody, don't hesitate to do that. Um, whatever the Spirit leads you to do. But here's what I want to ask you to do as we read this little passage. Oh, and if you've been through our welcome home process, and, uh, and we've not scared you off, and you want to come and be a member of our dysfunctional family, that in the moment when during invitation, you can come and, and do that as well. But as we think about this, and as I read this passage, and as we sing, I'd love to encourage you to consider your life. For us to consider our lives, especially in consideration with our faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, and steadfastness, godliness, friendship, and sacrificial love. And such abundance so that our life would share in the glory of God and people would see him in us. So that our identity would be submerged in his very nature and people would experience him when they experience us. So consider this, as Paul did, I believe, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We do it to receive an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, and I do not box as one beating the air. The very words of God.